Well, in, in January of 2018, I joined a, uh, a local workout group of men um, that started gathering in the city of Bartlett. And uh, that group spread throughout the, the city of Memphis, and it's an, actually a nationwide group called F3. F3 has three main objectives, uh, which stand for faith, fitness, fellowship, and faith. All these workouts are peer-led, they're free to all men, and um, they last about 45 minutes, and they are simply workout of, of push-ups, sit-ups, running, uh, maybe a little bit of weight added to that. Um, it's uh, a blessing to me to, to, to stay healthy and to stay fit, and uh, it's, it's been a joy to be a part of this group. The workout lasts about 45 minutes. And at the end of that 45 minutes, we always have some form of devotion and prayer. And uh, when you're a new guy, they they you you show up and you're kind of scared. You don't know what's going to happen, and and they call you the friendly new guy. And at the end of the workout, they give you an F3 name. And uh, typically, they they purge that name from some ideas about you, your family, your life, your interests. Um, If they can't get a good uh, name that you despise and hate from that information, then they will ask embarrassing stories, which some men are uh, reluctant to tell, but they do, and then it ends up becoming really bad for them. Um, so as you're probably wondering, well, what's your name, Nathan? My name is Part-Timer. That's my name. And you might ask why. Well, because when I started F3, it's, my life was similar than it is now. Um, I'm a pastor. Um, I have five children, a wife, and a dog. Um, I work not only here at the church, but I work another part, uh, secular job. And, um, and like many people uh, in this world today, uh, the joke of being named part-timer came from the idea that pastors don't really do much. That was kind of the idea. Um, those that gave me that name also were like, oh, you've got oh, plenty of time on your hands with all this that you have to do. Um, And I was thinking about that this week uh, because of what F3 means to me, but also because I think about um, that question, what do you do all day, pastor? When I was in full-time ministry, I actually got that question a lot. And the running joke is, oh, you go golfing throughout the week and and maybe throw 30, 45 minutes of the sermon together. And, um, And while my name was given to me in jest... I think people really do question the validity and the, um, the time that a pastor puts into his work. Um, matter of fact, it's oftentimes a criticism, I would, if, if I'm being honest with you, and it's a criticism that I think weighs on the heart of many pastors, so much so that they seek to juggle many different aspects of church ministry that bury them in time consumption. Um, in a full-time context, you'll often, often find the pastor cleaning the church, uh, cutting the grass, fixing the plumbing, filling the baptistry, visiting the sick, burying the dead, uh, teaching the Sunday school f- class, um, and finally finding some time to pray and prepare and preach a sermon. And when you consider that a major- majority of U.S. churches are 100 people or less, 
a majority of them are, then you can see how it's not hard to imagine a pastor doing all these things throughout his week. Thus, the joke really doesn't sit well with those men. I would consider an unacceptable answer to, Pastor, what do you do all day? I would consider an unacceptable answer to the general public to be, well, I simply study God's word for my sermon and pray. That would be an unacceptable answer to many congregations. I don't think that would be an unacceptable answer to you, but it is a sad reality in our, in our world and our culture. And I bring that to your attention today because I think that it, it really puts a pinpoint on the lack of focus of the preaching of the gospel and of the word of God as a centrality to our worship services today. If you ask people why they go to their church, a lot of people in in our world and our culture would say, well, I, I like the people that go there, or they've got a great youth program, or I love the singing, or I like the, the children's ministry. And then you'll also often ask, well, why did you leave your church? And again, you get a similar answer. Well, I didn't really like the music, or I really didn't like the people, or I really didn't like the youth ministry or the program. But really, the truth of the matter is, is that uh, above and beyond here at Redemption and, and really a biblically minded, healthy church should make preaching the priority of all of its ministry. It's the central focus of what we do here as a church. Because while we may fellowship and we, my, while we may serve each other and love each other and teach our children, we want to be centered around the Word of God. And most importantly, we come to be fed spiritually, to, to have our souls nourished. And the Lord has so ordained that the preaching of God's Word is the mode and method in which that is accomplished. So... If you're ever describing to someone about your church and they ask you, well, why is it your pastor preaches for so long? It's not just to occupy your time because we want to be faithful to what the Word of God has given us. And in doing so, we want to explain it and exposit it in a way that teaches you, that feeds you in a healthy way. And making the Word of God the central focus of our worship. And so Paul is uh, spending some time in these verses today in our text defending his preaching ministry. Now, just as a refresher, um, you'll be reminded that Paul is arguing with and he's making this argument with the church in Corinth about their love and their lust for worldly things, particularly their attraction to the secular wisdom versus godly wisdom. And it's become such a prevalent problem in the church that it's seeped into their love of the culture more than their love of Christ and His Word. And it's led to uh, applicable problems like factions and divisions and so on and so forth. And so we looked last week at Paul making this great comparison in the end of chapter 1 about the difference between godly wisdom... And man's wisdom. And he, and he concludes his ideas by telling us that, listen, God has so chosen those who are weak and low and shameful to, to bring low those who are considered to be in the world wise and strong. 
God, it says in verse 28 of chapter 1, He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul is taking the approach to remind the Corinthians that that Christ has so revealed Himself to us that we are chosen in Him, we are called to believe in Him, And in doing so, we are called to believe in Him by hearing the gospel being preached to us. That the the gospel message, the the message of Christ being crucified upon the cross for uh, for the death of sin or the victory over sin and death, that message is the very personification of God's wisdom for us. And it changes us. It's literally the power of God manifested in us. When we hear that, we realize our, our desperate sinful state and we turn to Christ in faith and are transformed. And so Paul's message in comparing man's wisdom with God's wisdom is highlighted in the fact that it is through the preaching ministry of the church. That that's where we see the failure of man's wisdom and the reality and the truth of God's wisdom over man. And so Paul is going to, in these verses, defend his preaching ministry and highlight a preaching ministry that results in the glory of God. And so that's my title for my sermon today, Preaching for the Glory of God. And let me just say very personally... It is a joy to preach the Word of God. It is a joy to sit down and study and and learn and understand. Um, It is a challenging feat. But it is a joy to try and help you understand in an imperfect way. I am an imperfect vessel. Adam and Stuart get up here and we we, we acknowledge that we are imperfect vessels and somehow through the foolishness of our preaching, God's name is glorified and the truth is made known to His people. But we stand upon the firm truth that the preaching ministry should be the foremost ministry in our church and we will always stand by that. You will not convince us of anything else because it's through the preaching of God's Word that people are changed. It's not through the singing. We don't do altar calls at the end of the benediction or at the end of the call to worship. We do it after the Word of God is proclaimed and therefore transforms the heart and lives of people. It's the words that God has given us proclaimed from the mouth of imperfect people by which we are changed. And so Paul is going to spend some time first defending his ministry. Defending it to, like many of the letters that Paul wrote to the churches, Paul has to defend his ministry. He starts oftentimes uh, dealing with the critics that have uh, laid criticism toward him. Criticisms about his apostleship. Criticisms about the things that maybe he taught them. But this time, his uh, defense is not on his uh, apostleship or, or the calling that is upon his life. His defense is the way in which he preaches. 
If you look with me in uh, chapter uh, 2, he says, And when I came to you, brothers, did I not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God? Or I'm sorry, he said, Did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, there is nothing more discouraging than a pastor being criticized for what he does faithfully for the Lord Jesus. But it comes. It's, it's a necessary part of the life of a, of, a, of a preacher and minister of the gospel. We acknowledge the reality that we will be criticized. And Paul is defending those criticisms saying, listen... You're going to criticize me now in Corinth, not on my, pre- on my apostleship, but on my preaching. Criticizing him for not living up to the standards that existed in Corinth. And we will see throughout the book of 1 Corinthians that he continually refers to these criticisms. For example, if you can see verses uh, 1 through 5 in chapter 4, you may have to flip over one page. Paul refers to these criticisms again in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So Paul is making his case. He makes his case in chapter 2. We'll read that in a couple weeks. And he makes his case in chapter 4 that these Corinthians are trying to stand in judgment over him, but he stands to do what he is called to do, faithful to preach the gospel, and he knows that the Lord is his judge, not the people. The Lord will find him faithful or unfaithful. And so as he's defending himself, he considers for them and, and teaches them that the proper way in which he teaches them is not trying to compete with this culture around them. He's not trying to live up to the expectations that the sophists and other, the, the other rhetorical and verbal uh, uh, showmans were doing in their community. He says, I, I didn't come to you proclaiming or preaching the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That's what he means. That lofty speech or wisdom is referring to the culture that existed in Corinth. A culture of showmanship, of pizzazz. And it was all from the secular wise men of Corinth that seemed to be the enemy of Paul. Author Ben Witherington uh, comments on this culture around him. And it's an interesting culture that seems very similar to our culture today. The audience, he says, was expected in Paul's day to evaluate a rhetorical speech and compare it to others. Rhetorical speakers expected the audience uh, to judge their oral performance. The Corinthians were not acting differently from others who had been raised in a culture that had certain expectations about rhetorical performances. It was believed that a person is as he or her, or her speaks. That is, there a correspondence between words and life. 
And that one who is eloquent, they believed, is also wise. Paul's personal presence seemed to have been weak. And by rhetorical standards, this reflected on his ethos, his ability to establish his good character and credibility. Now, I couldn't help but thinking about a culture today that is centered around two different aspects of verbal communication. One is in the form of uh, more of writing than verbal, but it's blogs, it's podcasts, it's TED Talks. It's the way in which we formulate our words, which, by the way, don't even carry meaning today. But therefore, we are judged by the way that we write about the world and, and comment on the culture. And it therefore gives us some form of significance and value. If we can encapsulate an idea in 140 characters on Twitter, then we're praised and we're followed and we're liked. It's a different style, but it's the same idea as the rhetorical culture of Paul's day. And Paul says, look, I'm not getting into the showmanship of this day. I'm not worrying about pizzazz from the pulpit. I am here to preach Christ and Him crucified. And for us to understand preaching, we need to understand Paul's central focus. And we can find the understanding of preaching from the words in which Paul used, since words really do matter. Now, as we study the Greek language, we know that there were a myriad of words used that were translated as preaching in the New Testament. Words like in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, Paul uses the Greek term evangelizo, which literally means to proclaim good news or a good message. Angelo is a, is a message or an announcement that is proclaimed. You add the, the prefix EU to it, it means something that is a good message that is proclaimed. So when you think about in the New Testament, the women at the, the empty tomb running and rushing to the disciples to tell them the good news that Jesus has risen, they were giving evangelizo, a good message to them. That same word is used and, and, and transliterated in English as evangelism. Evangelizo, evangelism, telling of the good news. Preaching is oftentimes translated in the New Testament in that, word, in that wording, evangelizo. You are proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our passage today, Paul uses two more Greek words. A derivative of evangelizo is katangelizo which is, again, announcing from, focusing on the person in which is the person that is proclaiming. And the second word that he uses is caruso, which takes the verbal form from the noun kirks. And a kirks was a herald of good tidings. A kirks was more a formally authenticated herald in a kingdom who was hired to announce to the citizen good news from the king. They were verbal practitioners whose resume included a thundering vocal range so that the message could be heard across a, a, a large landscape, maybe even a coliseum or an amphitheater. Therefore, one who uh, is engaged in caruso is becoming a herald or heralding good news or announcement. 
But what's interesting about that word is that it is an authenticated message sent by a dignitary, or in Paul's case, the very words of God spoken by the King of Kings. So if we're going to understand preaching then, from even these terms, we would say preaching is the bold, public, confident proclamation of the good news of God's Word that's authenticated by the one who sent the Holy Spirit, the messenger who delivers faithfully to appointed people of interested listening. When you came to know the gospel, you were called externally by that preaching of the gospel, a bold, confident proclamation of the good news of a faithful teacher or preacher sent by the Holy Spirit, given from the writer to which that preacher or teacher was teaching, and your eyes were opened to hear and believe and trust that faithful message. Therefore, preaching is of great necessity for transformation to happen. Matter of fact, uh, Mark Dever states that preaching derives its authority by being rooted in and tightly tethered to God's Word. Without it, preaching is simply just a speech. Charles Spurgeon, who is the prince of preachers, wrote in his lecture to my students a much more eloquent statement. He wrote, However eloquent the sower's basket, it is a miserable mockery if it be without seed. The grandest discourse ever delivered is an ostentatious failure if the doctrine of the grace of God be absent from it. It sweeps over men's heads like a cloud, but it distributes no rain upon the thirsty earth and therefore the remembrance of it to souls taught wisdom by an experience of pressing need is one of disappointment or worse. So understand that in Paul's defense of his ministry, he is defending his preaching ministry as one that is built upon delivering doctrine of God to his hearers, not decoration. He's not interested in fluff or pizzazz. He is interested in bringing to them the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in that work to do its great uh, transformation in the hearts of the people. And that's what he's saying to them in Acts chapter 18. When he came, he came preaching to them truth, standing in comparison to a culture that was so built upon the fluff of words and the order in which they were delivered, not in the truth of them or the spiritual power of them. They were merely pageantry. Preaching of God's Word should be the most central focus of every church gathering around the world because it's the place in which God speaks to us through His Word. And that preaching should center on Christ, His person, His work upon the cross to provide redemption, His victorious resurrection, ascension, and subsequent return. Listen, if we only preach in churches about God then you might just ask, well, which God? Which God are you referring to, preacher? Which God are are you mentioning if we just talk about God in general? Then the preacher may respond, well, the God of the Bible, of course. And you can respond, well, there's many gods mentioned in the Bible. 
There's Baal, there's Dagon. Which God are you referring to? And so you might hear us say things like the God of Israel. But most importantly, whereby which all of Scripture culminates, we focus our preaching on the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. Thinking about that for a second, that phrase, Christ and Him crucified, it's not just about Jesus hanging on a cross. It's about the person of Jesus. Jesus literally meaning the one who saves. His very act of salvation. And the very act of salvation through the crucifixion reflects not just one act in one day, but the cumulative work of God throughout all history to bring about that act of redemption. Christ and Him crucified is literally a summary of of the great redemptive work of God that He's been carrying forth from before creation began. When He planned this great redemption. When, we, when He planned this great salvation. So we preach Christ. Be reminded, church, of our great doctrinal statement on Jesus. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, is the divinely appointed mediator between God and man. Having taken upon Himself human nature, yet without sin, He perfectly fulfilled the law. He suffered and died upon the cross for the salvation of sinners. He was buried and rose again the third day, and He ascended to His Father, at whose right hand He ever liveth to make intercession for His people. He is the only mediator, the prophet, priest, and king of the church and sovereign of the universe. This is the Jesus whom we preach. And He is the focus of our worship. He is the main course of our preaching for us to consume each week. Because this is where we are fed. And this is why it takes precedence in the order of worship. And this is what we've instilled here at our church in comparison to churches across our land. And we hope that you don't just come for the music even though we are blessed with great worship leading. We hope that you don't just come for the focus on our children even though we are intentional to teach our children that they are an active part of our worship. We know that Adam and Shelley do a wonderful job in their motions, but we hope that you don't come for just the motions. We hope that you come for the preaching. And the preaching will not always be perfect. It will never be perfect. It might be boring or we might lose focus, but the purpose of it all is that God has an intention for you every single week to be open and ready to learn from His Word through the preaching of His His Word. And so church, consider what you need as a believer. As a believer who's been given new life in Jesus... You need the proclamation of the gospel message each week in a gathering of God's people as food for your soul. You need to be pointed back to Christ, to His grace and forgiveness, His power working in you, this coming consummation of the kingdom, because you need this hope. Jokes and long illustrations and all other forms of pulpit pizzazz may woo you to a chocolate, uh, woo, woo you to the pews like some chocolate cake sitting on the counter. But eating the whole thing is only going to bring you suffering and pain down the road. You need a healthy balance of spiritual protein and carbs that will strengthen you for the battle each and every day. 
I remember the phrase back in the 90s that the church culture jumped on, spiritual milk, it does the body good. Paul not only defends his ministry, but he reveals a preacher's heart. He reveals a preacher's heart. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, he simply says this, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Not only does Paul defend his ministry as focused primarily on teaching the truth of God's Word, the doctrine that is necessary for us, but he shows us his heart. He's honest with us. He's, he, he lays himself bare as to what type of a preacher he is and one that preachers should emulate. It's a, it's a humble heart. He says to you, I was with you in weakness. And I think this weakness focuses on his humility. Now the word weakness there in the Greek actually refers to illness, physical illness. And it's believed that Paul is speaking about one or two different types of weaknesses here. Some commentators believe that Paul is referring to a physical ailment that plagued Paul's life. Matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 4, he references this to the, the people of Galatia. He tells them, you know it was because of a bodily sickness that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Jesus Christ. Paul acknowledges that that his body was experiencing a sickness, a weakness, an ailment that allowed him to and led him to stay in Galatia and preach the gospel. And so this weakness, commentators believe, is also what Paul is referring to in our passage today. That the very weakness that he had, this unknown sickness in his body that often people refer to also as the thorn in his flesh, it kept him in such a humble state because it was such a weakness for him. A physical weakness. A weakness that if you can imagine any sickness that you may feel, it it sapped him of energy. It caused him irritability possibly or just an uncomfortable state. And yet if Paul trudged through such ailment to preach the gospel faithfully, it gives us pause to consider such a a dependence upon God to carry out such a task in sicknesses. Other commentators believe that Paul isn't referring to his sickness but instead referring to his persecutions. His persecutions. If you look in 1 Corinthians 4 again, in verse 9 through 13, probably a page flip away, he says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held in honor, but but you are held in honor, but we in, in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse 
of all things. Also, Paul, mentioning the very word weakness there, isn't necessarily referencing a physical sickness, but instead, the very weakness and the despising of God's messengers, God's preachers, God's ministers and apostles, who were treated so unfairly, with such despise, and that, that literally it was a weakness to them. But in that weakness, whether it be persecution, whether it be a physical ailment, Paul is telling that in humility, he clung to Christ as a means in which he accomplished the great task of preaching God's Word. Paul is showing us that preaching God's Word does not come from some self-reliance that existed in the wise men of Paul's day in Corinth. This is what self-reliance the Corinthians were being tempted towards. But a preacher of God's Word is not about self-reliance. He's dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit, the authority of God's Word, and the faithfulness of Christ to carry out His purposes even when we are weak. He is strong. So however you may interpret that passage, understand Paul's great clinging to Christ in the midst of that weakness. In the context following then, he continues by saying that he approached the task of preaching also with fear and trembling. This again, an act of humility, of reverence for the task and responsibility to stand before the people, to rightly divide the truth and to speak God's word to men. This is a humbling task. One that none of us as ministers of the gospel ever approach with arrogance. I read a story of a confident guest minister who filled the pulpit one day. And he stood passionately and proudly preaching the, 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 the Word of God, but the people were not connecting with him. And as he left the pulpit with his head hanging low that day, discouraged, an older gentleman approached him, and he told the young preacher these words. He said, if you would have entered the pulpit in the way that you just left it, you would have left the pulpit in the way that you entered it. Confidence in preaching doesn't come in our own ability. Our confidence comes primarily in the trust and the sufficiency of God's Word, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the promise that God's Word will never return void, so that we as preachers humbly come to the Word of God, rightly dividing the truth, crafting a sermon, delivering that sermon bathed in prayer, and reliant on God to do His work in His own timing. We have no idea when you're going to hear the message that's delivered. Parents, you understand this. You might tell your children 15 times the same thing over and over again. And for some of your children, it might be the ninth time you said it, it might be the twelfth time you said it, or it might be when their youth pastor said it. Right? I don't know when the, the Word of God is going to resonate in your heart. You may hear a message that I preach today and it may resonate, or you may go back and listen to a message that I preached five years ago that it may resonate. Someone recently came and told me how important a previous message I preached to them, how how much it meant to them. It shocked me. I couldn't even remember the very message I preached that day, but it meant something to them. 
Our purpose in preaching God's word is a reliance and a confidence in simply trusting in the sovereignty of God. Paul tells them in chapter 2, verse 4, My speech and my message were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul states that his confidence is in the Word of God. He's not trying to persuade people with rhetoric or reason or logic. He doesn't throw reason or logic out of the way. He doesn't speak like an ignorant man. Paul is very educated. But he's not relying upon anything but the Word of God to do its work. Therefore, sermon, or excuse me, Spurgeon said once again, a sermon moreover comes with a far greater power to the consciences of the hearers when it is plainly the very Word of God. Not a lecture about the Scripture, but Scripture itself opened up and enforced. He says it is due to the majesty of inspiration that when you profess to be preaching from a verse, you do not trust it out of sight to make room for your own thinkings. Finally, Paul tells us about the preacher's effectiveness and how that's qualified. In other words, how does Paul grade his effectiveness as a preacher? How does he sleep at night after preaching a sermon? Does he worry or fret over its reception? And verse 4 and 5 tell us that. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul states that the effectiveness of his preaching is evidenced in the very existence of the Corinthian church. He looks back and sees the Spirit of God and the power of God on display because he literally has people sitting there who are saved. How were they saved? When he showed up in Acts chapter 18, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the message, and allowing the Spirit of God to work. Now he has a place to show up to in Corinth, a very demonstration of his effectiveness. In, in his life. And so church, how do we understand the effectiveness of a preacher? That is qualified by the very way in which the Spirit of God leads and moves and works according to the Word of God, bringing forth fruit. Paul shows that fruit in the demonstration of the faith in, of, of, in Jesus Christ in Corinth. He says something very similar to the Thessalonians. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul was encouraged, just as in Thessalonica and in Corinth, That his preaching had not returned void, but it was bringing forth fruit. That it was changing people's lives. That they did not just hear the Word, but that the Word was showing evidence of the power of God at work in them. Therefore, a preacher then boldly proclaims the truth, and afterwards he rests that God will bring forth fruit in, in hearts and lives. I don't know who originally said this. I heard 
R.C. Sproul say it, Steve Lawson say it, but the phrase goes like this, God's sovereignty is the softest pillow to lay your head on at night. And that is so true for a preacher. To deliver the gospel message and trust that in God's timing and His wisdom, He will bring forth fruit that will bring His own name glory. A a preacher or pastor does not have to bring about spiritual results with persuasion. Instead, he trusts that spiritual results will bear fruit when sin is forsaken. When marriages are healed, addictions laid down, anger is replaced with peace. When babes in Christ are born and grown to maturity, the preacher rejoices in him. When couples commit to a biblical marriage and remain faithful, preachers rejoice. When spiritual men are led to serve the Lord and accept the call faithfully to preach the gospel and rejoice in the and rejoice in the work of the Lord in their own life, preachers rejoice. This is a lifelong work. One that the preacher devotes his life to and by God's grace will be used over a lifelong preaching ministry to see God work. That's why I covet the passage in Matthew chapter 13 in the Gospels. Let me ask you to turn your Bibles there and I'll be finished today. Matthew chapter 13, it's the parable of the sower, describing the work of the kingdom. It's a famous passage, you know it well, but it helps for us to read it together. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 1, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and he sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And when he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell upon the path, and the birds came and devoured them. And other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. And other seeds fell among thorns. And the thorns grew and choked them, and other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let them hear. And Jesus then describes and explains this parable for us in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of God of the kingdom and does not understand that the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. This is what's sown along the path. As for what is sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. And as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another case sixty, and in another thirty. The parable is challenging to any preacher because it describes for us the work of God's kingdom under the preaching ministry. 
that as the gospel of the, uh, of, the, of the kingdom goes forth as scattered seed, we know it will fall in many different paths with many different responses. Some with immediate rejoicing and yet later discouragement. But we know that it will fall on good soil and it will become fruitful. And it will become fruitful in many different ways. And so as preachers, we strive to move forward faithfully, day by day, proclaiming the gospel, trusting God's sovereignty to bring about a good work. This past year, I did something that I've never done before. I planted tomatoes. And out of five tomato plants, I got one tomato. And I was so excited. It was not even the size of a pool ball. And it tasted horrible. But I was excited for it. And you know what that one tomato has done? It has motivated me to plant more things. Which is probably Adam's fault. But he does that to me. But when you as a pastor, when you as a minister of the gospel, when you as a faithful believer in Jesus Christ, when you proclaim the gospel, and you're a gardener of the gospel, like I'm a gardener in my backyard, a pitiful one, and yet you see the fruit of that gospel come forth, it excites you no matter how bad it looks. No matter how ugly it came out or what it tastes like, you rejoice. And it is motivation for you to continue on and to continue on until your last dying breath being faithful because I didn't make that tomato grow. I didn't provide the nutrients in the soil. I did what I needed to do and probably did it really poorly. And yet that tomato represents for me why I'm in ministry. Because God has allowed me and other men in this church to see fruitfulness in different ways through different times that motivates us to continue, not for our glory, but for the, for the glory of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you, Father, that you have revealed your son Jesus to us that you have spoken to us about him in words and you've allowed men like me and others to preach those words to other people. God, you have done what we could not do in ourselves. God, you have done a great work through your power and your might in bringing lost souls to yourself through the preaching of God's word. And so I want to take a moment, Father, and thank you for all those who were faithful preachers of God's Word in the lives of everybody here today. Those former pastors and Sunday school teachers and leaders who stood up and shared the Gospel that you used in such a mighty way to bring us to Christ. Some of us may not even know their names anymore, but you know them. And we thank you for sending them our way. Because their faithfulness in conjunction with your mighty power and your predestined work changed our lives. And so, Father, would you please help us to cherish the preaching of God's Word. 
Would you help us to long to learn and understand your word more and more? And to take what we know and understand and share it with other people, whether we're preachers or not. And Father, would you help us to, would you allow us, Father, to see the fruit of that work in some way? according to your timing and purposes. Many of us today are, are working on someone, as we might say, Father. You know who they are. Maybe their prayers offered up for that person. Maybe there are conversations that are being had. But in our hearts, you know, Father, that we want them to know Christ. Or we want them to grow in Christ. And we pray for fruitfulness. Fruitfulness in conjunction with our faithfulness, God. And we trust you, Lord, to do that in your timing, for your glory, and your purposes. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, we come now to the Lord's Supper.